my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Christopher D. Colinda, PhD, founder of the Strategic Leaders Academy. Dr. Kalinda works with leaders who want to apply insights from history and military operations to transform their businesses. A West Point graduate, recognized combat leader, and retired Army colonel, he defined... <clears throat> He defied conventional wisdom in Afghanistan by motivating a large insurgent group to switch sides, uh, the only example of such, uh, such success in the 20-year history of the war. As a trusted advisor to three four-star generals and two undersecretaries of defense, he became the first American to have both fought the Taliban as a commander in combat and negotiated with them in peace talks. He holds a PhD in war studies from King's College London and is the author of Zero Sum Victory, What We're Getting Wrong About War, and uh, one of the, the leadership books that uh, really started me off on my leadership journey, Leadership, The Warrior's Art. It's a, uh, a trusted anthology that's been in print for over 20 years and has helped tens of thousands of leaders succeed in combat and business. His unique warrior diplomacy has been featured in New York Times bestselling books, and media outlets, including CNN, MSNBC, BBC, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. So I'm honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kalinda. Or do, do you go by Dr. Kalinda? Or yeah, you, Chris Colonel? is fine. Yeah, just Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave. It's, it's delightful to be on your program. Thanks. Well, let's uh, let's start off with you know, where you were born and raised and maybe some of your early influences that that lev led you on this uh, this life of this lifelong journey of service to others. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I was well born in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was, you know, I was really kind of scrawny and awkward growing up. I wrestled in the 82 pound weight class in eighth grade in the 89 pound weight class as a freshman in high school. So um, being scrawny and awkward, it also made me a target for a lot of bullies. And of course, the harder I tried to fit in to avoid the bullies, the more awkward I got. And, you know, the, the bullying just sort of, sort of piled on. Um, and yeah, middle school in the first two years of high school, like the seventh circle of hell for me. Um, and yeah, I always wanted to, I wanted to put myself in a position where I'd never feel like that again. Um, yeah, I had a great uh, high school English teacher who kind of, you know, she took in me and, you know, a bunch of other misfits <laughs> um, and she was awesome. I, uh, you know, 
was accepted to West Point and going there gave me that opportunity to not only make sure that I was never put in that kind of position again, but I, I could also help prevent other people from being in that position. And so that was made the military pretty attractive to me. Um, I didn't know how I would like the academy. I didn't know how I'd like serving in the army. I wound up, I, I, I really, um, you know, both brought, brought me a lot of joy. They brought me some heartache too, but they also brought me a lot of joy. Yeah, I, I served in the military for 24 and a half years. Um, one of those experiences was leading a force of about 800 paratroopers in Eastern Afghanistan in 2007 and 2008. 2007 was one of the deadliest areas of the country. 2008 was it was uh, transformed, and that was because what our, our our folks did out there was was to motivate this insurgent group to stop fighting and switch sides. Um, and that, that got a lot of people's attention. So I was uh, asked to helped the Obama administration write their new strategy. General McChrystal took me out uh, with him to Afghanistan to be senior advisor, stayed with him through his command uh, through a few months of General Petraeus. Um, and then the Secretary of Defense asked me to be his lead, you know, his lead, uh, his representative, personal representative in the talks we had with the Taliban in 2011, 2012. Um, and so that meant declining a senior army command, retiring from the, from the military. So I served as a department of defense civilian for a couple of years, but the talks didn't work out uh, for a lot of different reasons. And, um, and, and so I resigned from the government in 2014, started my own consulting business. And, you know, now I, I like to work with, I would like to work with leaders who, who want to get good at getting better. Um, and, and I do that through building an emotional connection with them. Uh, helping them increase their their capacity and um, and and common sense accountability. I found those to be magic in terms of personal growth. I'm I'm curious to get a little more uh, background. You know, I, I know that your father was a veteran. Um, he he served in Vietnam, right? I think I no. He was a he was a uh, Jag officer that uh, he didn't go to Vietnam. Uh, so he's, I think he spent like 30 years as a, as a SGA retired as a colonel, which is awesome. And then my other brother, my, my, uh, uh, one of my brothers is, uh, also now a, uh, Jag officer in the, you know, in the army reserves as a colonel. So you got three colonels in the, in the wow. family. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Now you, you talked about, being kind of scrawny and in, in your junior high, high school years. And did you wrestle your entire high school career? Through junior year. Through junior year. Yeah. And did you do any other sports? I played baseball and I played uh, tennis. So baseball was my jam. Um, and yeah, I was a pitcher. So yeah, yeah that was uh yeah, that, that was my thing. I wanted to play baseball in, in college um, so initially I was, I had no desire to go to military Academy and then I got a, got a phone call. My, I think it was my graduation day from high school. Like, Hey, you've been accepted to West point. Do you want to go? It's from the Senator's office. And I was like, well, you know, if I, if I go and I don't like it, I can always leave. It's my 18 year old brain. <laughs> if I go and I don't like it, I can always leave. Uh, but if I don't go, I'll always wonder, could I have made it? 
Um, and so I was like, okay, yes, I'll go. Um, I played baseball my freshman year in uh, college and then uh, hurt my, hurt my shoulder. And so I was washed up and I took up boxing. Yeah. I always like to, I always feel like there's some parallel to a, a person's leadership development, you know, when, when they've played team sports and just sports where they're, uh, you know, they're the only person competing. There's those two uh, types of lessons learned when you're working with a team and when you have to be self-reliant, you know, uh, when you're out there performing. There's all always the lead up, you know, the practice and working with other people to help develop. But I, I was think it's pretty cool to see how people develop in their early years and then that those skills kind of translate and get further developed uh, later on in life and and so and then you go to one of the the premier uh military academies uh in the world and it's even more leadership development uh after your time at west point what what did your army career look like until you ended up going over into combat. Yeah, I was, I tell you, I was very fortunate. I had just this series of just exceptional leaders from, uh, you know, second Lieutenant up to, up to Lieutenant Colonel. It was, it was really, it was, it was awesome. Um, and I was in a cavalry unit and the cavalry, you know, we pride ourselves on junior leader initiative having lots of uh, independent decision-making, you know, of course, supporting the common good. Um, so it's very different than maybe some organizations like, you know, more infantry type organizations that, you know, maybe are more regimented and, and, and lockstep. So I fit in perfectly, you know, as a, you know, sort of a natural misfit. Um, the cavalry was, that was, that was my jam. I was, I really thrived there and, and, and enjoyed it. Um, the, yeah. And then once I became a Lieutenant Colonel, I hit like a couple of toxic leaders. Oh my goodness. It was terrible. Um, and, uh, and then I was fortunate to, I was, uh, you know, fortunate to have the, have the command and, and being the command, you know, leading this unit for, for three years. Um, so two years before we went into combat and then 15 months there. And, um, yeah, it was, that was a that was a special organization with just a lot of really great people. What was the catalyst that that led you to write leadership, the Warriors Art? Yeah, it, it it first came out as you mentioned in two thousand one, right before nine eleven. So yeah, it's like that summer, and I was at the University of Wisconsin going to graduate school en route to teaching at West Point for three years in the history department. And I look on bookshelves for leadership stuff because I always enjoyed studying leadership. And there's a lot of like business leadership books. You know, some are good, some are complete rubbish, but there's not, not really any military leadership books outside of like biographies and autobiographies. And I thought, you know, maybe I can make, make a contribution here. Yeah, nobody wants to read my autobiography. I was, you know, a senior captain at that point. Um, you know, <laughs> rather uninteresting. Uh, but I'm going to a place where there's lots of people who have lots of experience. And oh, by the way, they've all been to graduate school. They got masters or PhDs, so they can write. 
And I bet I could put together a volume with a lot of different people's points of view. And so that's what I did. And I, I think the best way that you study leadership is you, you got to attack it from three angles. Um, theory. So understanding the big ideas, you know, theory and philosophy, the big ideas about leadership, you know, what really, um, you know, wrestling with human nature and what moves the needle there. Um, history. So looking at the history of leaders and organizations, both good and bad, and learning from that and what you gain is perspective. And then contemporary experience. So how people are applying those leadership ideas um, today, people who are wrestling, grappling with some of the same issues that you are. And I found that you got to have all three. Uh, because if you just have theory and history, but no practical experience, then you run the risk of getting a lot of ivory tower solutions. You know, it's like the <laughs> trying to make breakfast with a chocolate frying pan. It's not going to work. It's going to create a big mess. If you have uh, theory and experience, but you don't have that historical perspective, then you are likely to fall hook, line, and sinker into all sorts of fads that are here today and gone the next. Now, I remember growing up in the late 80s, early 90s, we had the one-minute manager uh, management by objective, management by walking around, as opposed to management by sitting on your butt. Yeah. And yeah, they were kind of here today and gone to next, and rightly so. Um, if you have history and experience, but you don't have the theory, you don't have the big ideas, then you're like, you're in a tactical hamster wheel. You know, you're not thinking about leadership strategically. And just like the person who's playing chess one move at a time, if you're up against somebody who knows the queen's gambit, you know who's going to win that match. Um, so when you put all three together, what you have is a um, a leadership a leadership discipline, a leadership course of of, of learning that is going to help you uh, think creatively, innovate, and sort of new heights. Speaking on that book, before we started recording. Uh, we talked about there's a new edition, the second edition right. of leadership. So uh, just reading some of the the additions to it, I, I definitely got to get another copy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what, what you've added uh, to create this second edition? Yeah. Yeah. The first edition, I mean, it succeeded beyond my wildest expectations. <laughs> um, so yeah, over 60,000 people are using it for their leader development programs. People that took the book into, with them into combat. A lot of the authors at, who were colonels at the time were three, you know, wound up being three and four star generals. I mean, so you got some really talented people, really just high quality people that wrote chapters for this thing. Um, so that was, that was really gratifying. Last year, Publish and I were talking and, and it's like, you know, book done really well a lot of things have changed since 2001 you've had the the you know of course the global war on terror the wars in afghanistan and and iraq all the different military deployments you had the end of don't ask don't tell uh you had all of you know the combat exclusion end. so now all military occupational specialties are open to women um various, you know, the social unrest that we saw in the 2020s, et cetera. And 
It's like, it's, you know, why don't we update this thing? And why don't we add some new chapters to it? So the next, it the book is as relevant for the next 20 years as it was the previous 20 years. And so I, I streamlined a bunch of chapters, included some key takeaways and action steps for each one um, to make it even more implementable. And then we added chapters on things like developing women as operational leaders. We added a chapter um, on how hazing and harassment and sexual assault damage unit readiness and cohesion. And then one of my uh, captains from Afghanistan who just retired as a, as a colonel and I uh, wrote a book about some combat leadership lessons we learned um, in Afghanistan or some leadership lessons that you can apply every day that we learned in combat. So, yeah, so that's the, that's the new edition just came out. And so let's let's touch on zero sum victory, uh, it, you know the subtitle "What We're Getting Wrong About War." Right. But so it's it's very timely. I mean, it, it really. Well, let, let's hear from you how it's applicable to today. Sure, I I. Had the good fortune. You mentioned going to King's College. So after after I resigned from the government, I had the opportunity to go to King's College and they wanted to put a practitioner on the faculty and they said they'd waive the tuition on the PhD. I was, thought that was a pretty good idea. <laughs> so I went and got after that. And I wanted to look at, and this so it was very therapeutic in some ways. I wanted to look at why, why the world's best military can't seem to win any wars anymore. What's going on there? Um, and when you look at Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, we had these big military interventions and the, against ragtag militant groups. And we wind up getting trapped in these quagmires and having unsuccessful outcomes. So, so what is it that is creating these, these quagmires, these fiascos, these disasters? And what is it that we're doing? So this is an internal look. What is it that we're doing at the policy and strategy level that is increasing the risk that these wars are going to turn into disasters? You know, our, our, our soldiers, our, our Marines, our, you know, sailors, our airmen, they're going to do what they're told. And they're going to do it to high standard. You know, the military is really, really good. Um, oftentimes, we're not telling them to do the right things. And, and so this begins to begins to snowball. And, and so what I, what I, what I found and what's applicable to business today, as well as to national security is we tend to go into these conflicts with a sort of a mental model that says all wars must end in a decisive military victory. And, and so we develop these strategies that feel good to us but have a very low probability of success. So, and there are plenty of businesses that have strategies that they develop that look good, um, but in the, you know, as things evolve, they become uh, increasingly problematic. We then have a hard time changing those strategies due to things like cognitive bias. So confirmation bias, status quo bias, loss aversion, all of these different things. Political and bureaucratic struggles, uh, dramas, silos, bureaucratic silos. 
Um, we have nobody in charge of our wars. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and relationship problems with the with the host nation. So the, the academic literature you'll call it principal agent problems. But it's like, you know, your person on the ground is is uh, or your your allies and partners are doing things that are serving their own interest naturally, not things that serve your interest. And 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 so as they get more corrupt in this case, it begins to really undermine the prospects of success. <clears throat> and then finally, um, you know, decision-making wise, when, when a president finally says, okay, we're, we're done with this. We're out of here. Um, let's see if we can negotiate. Well, by then you've lost all your leverage. Once you announce your withdrawal, all your leverage is gone. And, and then you wind up in a situation where the, the enemy is not going to negotiate and end the conflict with you because they realize that their their leverage is going to be much higher after you're gone you know as an intervening power and then the host nation's not gonna not going to negotiate with you they're not going to reform because what they want to do is keep you trapped there they want to keep the tra gravy train going so they're going to go kicking and screaming into any reform or um you know or talks and and that's how we get trapped in afghanistan a place like afghanistan for 20 years um, so there's all sorts of business lessons that we can learn from like the, the Afghanistan disaster, for instance, we can go there if you'd like. Um, and, and yeah, what it means to us today. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. And I, I'd really <clears throat> like to get some of your insight on, you know, the leadership lessons that could be learned by, by looking at the leaders in, in Ukraine. Mm. Well, that's, that, that's a great one. Cause you, <laughs> One of the biggest leadership lessons is that leaders have to be exemplars. Yeah, you know, they've got to model the behavior that they want everybody else to follow. Um, when when you go to a, a U.S. Civil War battlefield, for instance, you'll see a lot of people on horseback. And the reason why they rode horses into into battle, leaders rode horses into battle, is not because they were privileged or lazy it's a little bit because they could see a little bit better they're higher up see a little bit better but mainly is because they were the most vulnerable person on the battlefield everybody's shooting at you if you're on a horse and if you're not on a horse you're in front of your formation you probably got a saber in your hand and you've got your your hat on top of it and you're saying follow me you're the most vulnerable person in the formation. And the message is, if I can do my job, well, everybody's shooting at me. If I can model the behavior and the values that I want everybody in this formation to model, while everybody's shooting at me, you can too. In ancient warfare, you know, some of the chapters in Leadership the Warriors are about ancient warfare, Alexander the Great. Leaders in those phalanxes the leader was always on the right front and the reason the leader was in the right front is when you're in a shield wall you're holding your shield and so half the your shield is is covering you and half of it's covering the person to your left so you hold the shield in your left hand which means that the person on the right front of the formation they've got no shield to protect them they're the most exposed person and they're saying, I'm the leader. I'm going to be the most exposed, the most vulnerable person in this formation. 
And if I can do my job, I can stand my ground and fight. So can you. So let's let's compare and contrast Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, in terms of the leadership. In in Afghanistan, when when the going got tough, Afghan leaders took the money and ran. When the going got tough in Ukraine, and people said people were offering Zelensky a way out, he said, I don't want to ride. I want more ammo. You know, he was the exemplar. He rallied his people. The Afghan military just simply collapsed. When their leaders took the money and ran, everything collapsed around them. When Zelensky said, give me more ammo, the Ukrainian people rallied. Um, he was willing to be the exemplar. And, uh, and the Afghan leaders weren't. And the results were pretty striking. You, you talk about difficult changes, tough decisions, but from a leadership perspective, how you uh, gain buy-in for those difficult changes. Um, is this one of those, uh, you know, lead from the front examples? What are, you know, just what are the, the keys to gaining that, that buy-in? Yeah, it's such an important idea. Um, and it reminds me that there, you know, there's no such thing as military leadership. There isn't. There's just leadership. <laughs> there's this mythology that in the military, you can just, people are automatons and you give them orders regardless of how ridiculous and they'll follow them. That's not how it works in real life. I mean, you, you know that. Um, you've got to gain buy-in. If you want to get people's discretionary effort, you've got to gain buy-in. Otherwise, they are they'll 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 do everything that people in big organizations and bureaucracies do. They'll just you you just get compliance and that's it. So buy-in is vital. The reason why Joshua Chamberlain was able to stand his unit was able to stand his ground at Little Round Top in day two of Gettysburg is because he gained the buy-in of 117 deserters. He was handed 117 deserters on the, on the eve of the battle. And they nearly doubled or they, they increased the, the size of his force by a third because he was able to gain buy-in. And 117 out of the 120 deserters that he was given stood their ground at Little Round Top. And had they not, Gettysburg would have turned out very differently. Um, and it's because of buy-in. I think buy-in is a result of three factors. So you talk about it as a three-legged stool and you've got to have all three in place to, to have buy-in. So one of those is, is clarity about the common good. So people have to know what they're buying into. So being very, very clear about your mission and vision, your goals and values, your standards and expectations. When I work with leaders, I, I, I advise them on two things. First of all, you have to be able to describe your expectations so simply that an eight-year-old can repeat it back to you perfectly. Because if you can't do that, then it's probably too complicated and nobody's going to, people won't know what to do. Second is use the formula, what plus so that plus the results and outcomes that you want to achieve. So when you're giving a task or a mission or a requirement or a standard or a value, what it is, what we want to do, Use the two words so that, and then talk about the results and outcomes that you want to achieve by doing that particular task. And what that does is arms people with the bigger picture. 
it arms people with this is what we want to achieve by doing this. And, and so they'll know that if doing one thing is not going to get that result and outcome, that the result and outcome is the, you know, is the bigger part of it. it allows them to take initiative. It allows them to use discretion, allows them to use their imagination. So clarity is number one. The second is enlightened self-interest. So people have got to see themselves as better off by buying in. Um, as opposed to resisting or slow rolling. And then third is accountability. You know, people need to know what right looks like and the consequences. People need to know what awful looks like and the consequences. And people need to know what awesome looks like and the consequences of that. And, and so when you have all three in place in line, you, you, you've got buy-in. Of course, if you're missing one of the legs, so if you're missing the, the, um, you know, the clarity leg, people don't know what they're buying into, then, you know, you've just got um, self-interest, you got accountability, then what you wind up getting are fiefdoms, you know, where everybody's doing their own thing, um, you know, and they're just, uh, they're just operating in their own interest and not, not in the bigger picture. If you are missing the enlightened self-interest leg, then, you know, people might have clarity, there might be accountability, but if they don't see themselves as better off, then all you're going to get, get is compliance. You're not going to get discretionary effort. And then um, finally, if you are missing the accountability leg, then you're going to get backsliding. You know, uh, you're going to have inconsistent performance. So buy-in is is when you're at the intersection of those three. And the more clarity that you provide, the stronger people see themselves as better off. And consistent, you know, when you have consistent accountability, then you know that that middle intersection of the Venn diagram, you know, grows bigger and bigger uh, and your performance increases as well. Earlier when we were talking, uh, you mentioned a, a nonprofit that you've uh, put together that you founded. I want to talk a little bit about that, but I, I want the listeners to, I mean, this is just really awesome having this conversation with you I I was handed your book years ago when I first started off in a leadership position, getting to to talk to you, the person that put it all together, and <clears throat> and now talking about your new book, and then to find out that one of the things that you're passionate about is, is helping veterans, and um, it's one of the things that I talk about on this show quite frequently. Sure. And a lot of the people that listen to the show are veterans and first responders, uh, a lot of whom are struggling with PTSD and, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the symptoms that, that come along with experiencing traumatic events. And uh, I, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your nonprofit, its mission, and what mm -hmm. inspired you to create this organization. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, as I mentioned, six of my paratroopers were killed in action in Afghanistan back in 2007. Uh, so names are Chris Pfeiffer, Adrian Hike, Jacob Lowell, Ryan Fritchie, uh, Dave Boris, and Tom Bostic. And we're coming up on the 15-year anniversary of that deployment. And I wanted to do something special to acknowledge their service and sacrifice. You know, um, and 
And so part of that was I wanted to visit their graves. I could drive it. It's, you know, they're buried, you know, starting Nebraska all the way to Arlington National Cemetery. So it's almost due east from Nebraska. So I could drive it. That'd be kind of lame. Um, I could walk it, but that's just going to take an exorbitant amount of time. I just can't do. So I said, I know. I can pedal a bike 1,700 miles. <laughs> the only problem is I didn't have a bike. I hadn't ridden a bicycle in 20 years. So this is like April of 2021. I'm like, I ain't getting any younger. Uh, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it now. So plunked down, got a really nice road bike. I hired a cycling coach to get my butt in shape for this thing. And I started telling people so I don't chicken out. Uh, <laughs> so you know, put my money where my mouth is. And, and then I also thought that, you know, shoot, um, maybe this thing can do actually do some good, you know, can use it as a fundraiser. And, and so I created the Saber Six Foundation, which is named after twofold me. It's named after the six. And it was also my call sign in Afghanistan. Um, and what we're, what the Saber Six Foundation is all about is is so the honor is about um, honoring the dead, and the Saber Six Foundation is all about supporting the living. Um, and it's designed to support the our eight hundred paratroopers, their families and descendants um, achieve their dreams. One of the challenges you mentioned PTSD. I'm going to start a new thing. Call it PTSN post-traumatic stress normal uh, because you don't go through these kind of experiences without being affected by them, you know? Um, and, and one of the things that happens to military veterans, especially combat veterans is happiness follows a U according to a lot of studies, U curve. And at the top of the U on one side is like age 20 ish. And the other side is like age 60-ish. And then right in the middle, the bottom of the U is age 47.2, to be specific. <laughs> and, and so most of the people who deploy to combat are in the 18 to 27-year-old category. So they're at the top of the happiness curve. And at the same time, they've got this amazing sense of purpose. I'm defending my country. I'm in combat. I am fighting for my country and defending people back home. I've got this amazing sense of belonging. The person on my left and a person on my right has got my back. They get me, they got me, and they're going to be there for me. And then I've got the entire weight of the country behind me. That's pretty awesome. So a lot of people will look back on their time in combat, despite the heartache and despite the trauma, and say, these are among the happiest days of my life. And they leave that. And, and you find that I don't have that same sense of purpose anymore. I, I don't know if I belong. Nobody gets me out here in the civilian world. Nobody's got my back. Nobody knows how to help me. Now, for some people, they, they're able to make that pivot pretty quickly by new purpose and belonging. And they're ready to soar to new heights. We want to be there to help them. 
there are other people whose their their U curve is a bit more a bit bit steeper, bit deeper, and we want to help them flatten that U. Oh, yeah, you might call it midlife crisis. You know, where you get into kind of a funk around age forty-seven point two, and we want to help them bounce back and bounce back stronger, sort of new heights. And then there are people whose U curve is pretty steep. And at some point you cross a line where you get into depression, substance abuse, self-harm, and death by suicide. We've lost in the U.S. military seven over 7,000 service members killed in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Over 30,000 post-9-11 veterans have died by suicide. Within my own unit, people who were with this in 2007 and 2008, we've now lost more to suicide and substance abuse than were killed in combat. Um, we have uh, one guy, one of our best non-commissioned officers, top one or 2% person, leader. He now lives in a dumpster outside of a city library in Northern California as a, as a meth addict. Um, and he's just one of several stories like that. And yeah, I, I know it's 15 years later, but I, I, I just can't know that this is happening and not do anything about it. I can't, I can't, I can't do it on my own, but I bet we can put together a foundation and I bet we can do some awesome things to raise some, you know, raise some money and, and be there when, um, when guys who are in that situation are ready to move forward. And so that's what this nonprofit's all about. You know, I, I really appreciate everything that, that you've done for our country, the, the service. Uh, I mean, 24 plus years uh, serving in, in so many different capacities in, in the military. And now, uh, you know, post-service, to the military, uh, you've continued to commit your your wisdom and and your experience to uh, helping others achieve more. Uh, you know, I, I believe you do coaching, like professional development yeah, coaching. Too, yeah, that's right? exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I like to help people. You know, coaches. Um, you know, get people get good at getting better and you get good at getting better. I help people when, you know, we build an emotional connection together. I only work with people I can emotionally connect with. Um, I help them build their capacity. If, if you, if you 1% better each day in 70 days, you're twice as good. Um, and then accountability, you know, common sense accountability. So we're doing the right things the right ways. That's what I do. That's how I help people. So for those listening, what's the best way for people to connect with you, to, to learn more about you, maybe to learn more about your, your nonprofit? Um, you know, I know that there's going to be a lot of people listening that are going to want to get your books. Uh, you know, can you uh, give us all the links? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so the easiest way to get a hold of me is through the website strategicleadersacademy.com you'll see all the intellectual property and you know and things like that you can contact me at 
chris at strategicleadersacademy.com. I'm easily identifiable on social media. So if you just look for Chris Kalenda or Christopher Kalenda, you'll, you'll, you'll find me there. And the books are available where great books are sold. Um, and, and then finally, if you want to learn more about the Honor Ride and the Saber Six Foundation, you go to honorride.us. So honorride, one word, .us, not .com, but .us. And you'll be able to track my progress and, and, uh, you know, different ways to support stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how you can learn a bit more about, uh, about all that. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you for agreeing to, to spend this time with me talking about your books and, and your experiences and, uh, and thank you for the, the work that you continue to do to, to make our country even better. So, Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate the opportunity and and uh, and what you're doing to help leaders get good at getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.